This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hello, and welcome to The Fire This Time, the new uprising against racism and police violence. Thanks to everyone joining us today from around the U.S. and the world, including Costa Rica, London, and Oaxaca. It's a treat to have you logging in from so many time zones. My name is Tammy Kim, and I'm a freelance magazine reporter and a contributing opinion writer at The New York Times. I'm also the co-host of Time to Say Goodbye, a new podcast on Asian internationalism and the Asian American left. It's my great pleasure to moderate today's program with two people I greatly admire, Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Mark Lamont-Hill. Now it's my honor to bring in Kianga and Mark. Kianga is a two-time Haymarket author, a professor in FM studies at Princeton, and a columnist at The New Yorker and The New York Times. Her most recent book, Race for Profit, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Mark is a professor of media studies at Temple University, the author of the Nautilus award-winning book, Nobody, and a host of BET News. He's also the owner of Uncle Bobby's, which we get to support tonight, and the co-author of the forthcoming book, Except for Palestine, on the limits of progressive politics. Thank you both for being here. Thank nice you. <clears throat> so, Kianga and Mark, I thought we would start where you're both located, which is in the great city of Philadelphia. Uh, you both wrote books examining what we might now see as the first wave of Black Lives Matter. Um, so I was curious to hear what you've observed where you are you know, how does the, this protest movement feel in Philadelphia in each of your neighborhoods? And are there any Philadelphia-specific issues that are inflecting the demonstrations there? Let me start with you, Kanga. Sure. Um, I mean, it, it. my experience is caught between the kind of uh, two experiences that are you know, pervasive in the U.S. right now, which is one is there's this uprising against um, police abuse and violence uh, and all of its kind of uh, attendant factors. And then two, there's a deadly pandemic um, that uh, continues to uh, ravage the United States. Um, and so I have asthma and I just kind of function on the conservative end of uh, social distancing. So I haven't gone to um, any of the, uh, any of the, the protests. Um, but I have, uh, followed them on social media and, um, in the, you know, the daily paper here, um, in, uh, in Philly. And also, um, something that I think is kind of emblematic of what is happening now. You know, I live in a, uh, a pretty middle-class, um, kind of, uh, intentionally, this is where liberals move to. It's in Mount Airy and in, in, in Philly. Um, you know, people come here uh, because you know they want to live around other liberals and in a multiracial neighborhood. And so, um, two days ago, there was a march of a thousand people down Germantown Avenue, um, wow. which you know there had been every day uh, 
15 or 20 people gathering in front of our public library in the neighborhood. And so I knew that there had been a march planned, but I thought it would be something along uh, those lines. And so it was like a thousand people who wow. uh, took to the streets, stopped traffic. Um, it was pretty, um, pretty powerful. And then on Saturday, I was, you know, I was somewhat shocked at the turnout uh, of the the demonstration um, downtown. Uh, I don't know how big it officially was, but there was an aerial view um, of the, the protest at one point, and it was thousands of people. Um, and so I think that, you know, in Philly, which has a long history of uh, racist politicians, I mean, it was just a, a few uh, weeks ago that um, Wilson Good, who's African-American mayor, 1985, uh, he was mayor when the uh, some combination of him and the police department made a decision to drop a bomb um, on uh, a house of uh, uh, in the African-Americans at an organization called MOVE, a kind of countercultural mm-hmm. political uh, organization on the west side of, of Philadelphia that, you know, destroyed a city block, killed, I think, 11 uh, uh, people um, and was just just a. Uh, a testament. Uh, I mean, it, it is the most extreme example of police brutality uh, that I think that we have in the entire nation. Um, mm. And so it was just a few weeks ago where he was wrote an article in The, the Guardian suggesting that Philadelphia um, apologize uh, for, for that mm. act of depravity. So this is a city with a long history um, of uh, police abuse and violence that uh, continues um, to this day and that has a political leadership that appears to be impervious to uh, uh, to changing things, to um, understanding the, 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 the demands and what people are asking for because, you know, everyone has had to revamp their budgets because of the, the COVID crisis. Um, and so... Mayor, the, the mayor of Philadelphia, who's a Democrat, comes back with $370 million in budget cuts to every social service in the city of Philadelphia, affordable housing, public schools, everything except the police, a $23 million uh, increase for the police. So it, it exemplifies everything that is wrong in governance right now and why the police continue to be resistant to any kind of reform because they have never been forced to pay the price uh, for the the kind of terror that they inflict um, on black people and black communities. And so when you see that, that kind of arrogance, that is an arrogant budget in this moment to come back and say, no, not only are we not going to cut your budget, but we're gonna give you a $23 million increase. We're gonna make sure that police get raises at this particular moment, that's why people are flooding into the streets in this city and around the country. Wow. Thank you so much. What about you, Mark? What are you seeing and hearing from neighbors and the people around you in Philadelphia? I mean, I, I don't live too far from Kianga, so I'm seeing a lot of things. <laughs> okay. um, I, I, I think uh, it, it's such an interesting moment. Um, and in some ways, a shift, even in the last two weeks, what I've seen, some are exciting and others are, are a bit frustrating. Um, 
when the protests started, I also couldn't go out uh, because uh, my father's 92, my mother's 80. Uh, I haven't seen him in three months uh, because he was in the hospital uh, and then was sent to a nursing home. Uh, both places you don't want to be uh, as someone who's immunocompromised. And my hope is that as the city, quote unquote, opens up, I'll be able to see him soon. Uh, and so I didn't want to, I, I, literally every day I'm hoping I can see him. And so I didn't want to go out there. And that itself speaks to the kind of unfortunate and, and ignoble kind of challenges that the black folk have to wrestle with. You know, staying at home and not speaking out against the state killing you or going out and risking death okay. against the backdrop of COVID is itself a certain kind of challenge and contradiction that, that we shouldn't have to wrestle with. And that was entirely avoidable or largely avoidable. But but I was watching the protests and I'm listening to the protests. And I'm, I was very excited about the, the kind of radical energy uh, that I saw. You know, this is the product of decades of organizing. Uh, when you see people on the ground calling for abolition, calling for even defunding, uh, and we can probably unpack some of those distinctions. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's decades of organizing grassroots activism uh, and even when you talk about Black Lives Matter, even the BLM chapter of Philadelphia has been so committed on the ground to making these things happen that, you know, it, it, it was I was excited and proud to see that work pay off in a sense in terms of what we were mm-hmm. seeing on the ground. Kianga talked about Wilson Good, which I think is really important. I mean, he's the first black mayor and the first major city, it was first mayor to, you know, bomb his own citizens. Um, right before you get to uh, Wilson Good, you have Frank Rizzo. Who's who's mayor um, until eighty two, um, and Frank Rizzo, prior to being the mayor, was the police chief and one of the most vile, uh, arrogant, uh, and unabashed racists you would ever want to meet, among other things. And so, when you think about the arrogance of the state, and particularly inside of the city of Philadelphia, there's a statue to Frank Rizzo downtown, and an actual. I mean, there was. There was, right? <laughs> there ain't no more. Right. And that, that's the exciting part. So I'm looking at these rallies and they're literally trying to set it on fire. They're more, <laughs> they're trying to pull it down. They're, they're doing everything they can to, to this to this, to this this statue. And of course it doesn't come down, but the mayor then announces the next day because uh, he understood that this wasn't going to end um, and people will figure it out. Um, we're resourceful people. Um, he, he took it down, you know, over, overnight, they, they got rid of the sign. Uh, and, and that was for many people, it, it felt like, it, I mean, I don't want to liken it to like Tahrir Square or anything, but, or, or, or Iraq, but there was something very interesting about watching a kind of despotic leader's statue being pulled down. And there was a sense oh, yeah. of possibility in the air at that moment for me. Uh, and, and it's Philadelphian as someone whose family was d- directly connected to that legacy. My father was beaten unconscious by Rizzo police wow. officers and then charged with a crime that he eventually was found not guilty for because it was so absurd. But but the idea of it, you know, for that legacy, there were so many racial wounds there. The, the mural of Frank Rizzo mm-hmm. w- w- was was uh, painted over just a couple of days ago. So watching that kind of energy, watching people on the ground making demands and articulating a, a, a radical I think um, um, imagination for not for one mm-hmm. a radical imagination as opposed to what I I've often seen at Philadelphia protests over the years and protests throughout the years. When fast yeah. forward to the second um, to Saturday, there was a Divine Nine march. So all the Black Greek letter organizations mm-hmm. march, um, and suddenly there were a lot of folk down there. Uh, I was excited to see people energized. Uh, I was happy that there was mass action. However, uh, I was also concerned 
uh, with the messaging. Mm. I was concerned with the strategy. It felt now it felt like a, a liberal uh, must must see event. Uh, it was the thing that you could tag on your Instagram and your Facebook and say you were there. You can say struck a blow for justice, which is cool. But what are we asking for now? I'm looking at the pictures and I'm watching the police, Philadelphia police take a knee with the protesters. Right. That's not what we're marching for. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm listening to the I'm listening to the conversation shift from abolition to once again, wanting warmer and fuzzier prisons and officers that will do dances and shoot baskets with us. Mm-hmm. You know, that type of that gradual co-optation of the, the march and the movement from day one to day 10 or day 12 for me was no, noticeable. Right. And it, it I'm still excited and I still think we have a moment of possibility here. But we could very, very quickly slip right back into the language of liberal reform. Mm. And that's the concern I have at the same time that, again, I I couldn't be prouder of watching a country filled with uprisings and to see my city be one of them was 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 really was really extraordinary. Uncle Bobby's, of course, you know, my neighborhood, there was lots of there are a lot of buildings that were that were broken into. Uh, lots of things were crashed. Um, I, I can't pretend I wasn't a little bit nervous. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> I said, if they do it, they got it. You know, I, I will talk. Yeah, I can't. I can't be out here talking about this is a rebellion. Let's do it, and then be mad when I break my store. But I gotta <laughs> say, I felt some personal satisfaction and joy in seeing them skip over mine. Ain't nobody trying to loot Uncle Bobby's. That's exactly. And I'm so proud of that. But it also spoke to the kind of political calculation and the logic uh, that that often is not assigned to these resistance movements. Right? It, right. it, it was like, yes, these people are occupying our neighborhood. These people are exploiting our labor. You cool? Let's keep going. And that's not just about Uncle Bobby's. It's it's more about how it's more about not pretending that this was just some big unwieldy mess of 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 of, of random violence. Right. Uh, it, it was never that. And and I think it's important that we recognize that. And I think Philly is a case study in what, what was actually happening around the country. Wow. Thank you so much. Both of you made some historical references in your comments. And um, you know, it was sort of rereading. Baldwin this morning, because of course our talk is called The Fire at This Time, after James Baldwin's 63 classic, The Fire Next Time. And many commentators continue to analogize what we're seeing right now to what happened in the 60s. Um, And Kianga, I wanted to start by asking you, you wrote a piece in The New Yorker today about this kind of feeling maybe more like the rebellion in LA in April of 92. So I was curious if you could say a little bit about that argument and, and why you're indexing this moment to that time. Sure. Um, I think part of what I was trying to do was say that, of course, there are similarities with um, the uprisings of the the 1960s. The kind of continuous thread through all of this is police racism, police um, <clears throat> police violence. But we always know that uh, most of the you know urban uprisings of the the 20th century, whether it's Harlem, 1935, Detroit, 1943, uh, rebellions from uh, 1963, really through 1969. Uh, police brutality is the spark that lights a much larger fire uh, beneath of uh, un- unemployment, underemployment, substandard housing, uh, poverty, all of those sorts of, uh, of things. And so that all of those features are certainly uh, prevalent now. Um, and I think the COVID crisis has uh, exposed to everyone the extent to which um, African-Americans remain um, uh, 
marginalized, oppressed, and exploited um, mm. in this in this country. Uh, and I wanted to talk about the LA rebellion, though, as uh, the context within which we can understand why these uh, riots have uh, erupted, um, which is to say that in the aftermath of LA in 1992, um, this that wasn't a moment of uh, recognition of the oppression um, and racism experienced in Black communities. Thus, shouldn't we use society's resources to do something about it? Um, instead, it became a moment for recrimination led mm. by figures such as Bill Clinton um, and Joe Biden, uh, who helped to usher in uh, a crime bill, which is understood to be one of the pillars of mass incarceration uh, and the hyper-policing uh, of Black communities, but also uh, which helped to demonize uh, welfare recipients and ultimately uh, to uh, uh, get rid of welfare as an entitlement. Bill Clinton promised in 1992 to end welfare as we know it. He was supported by Biden. Um, and then in 1996, uh, uh, signs legislation uh, to do so. Um, and so <clears throat> I wanted to connect both of those to uh, today because one of the reasons why there is such hardship um, around COVID is because we have no social welfare state in this country. And one of the reasons we don't have a social welfare state um, in this country is because of the actions uh, uh, led by Republicans, um, accommodated and enhanced by the Democratic Party um, in, the, in the 1990s, who used racism um, and this perception of Black women on welfare, of Black people as lazy and wanting something for nothing uh, as the tool uh, to uh, essentially uh, uh, get rid of uh, welfare, even though everyone knew then um, who were making these decisions that the majority of people who were re welfare recipients in the 1990s uh, were white women, um, but they still use racial caricatures uh, as a way to undermine the system as a whole. And that is the reason why you know, there's such a dearth of food stamps that there is no cash uh, mm -hmm. payments available um, uh, uh, for people and that there's really just no system um, of, of, of social welfare. And so um, I, I think that there's a, a way that we can sometimes think of these things as uh, either the products of ancient history decisions that were made uh, a long time ago. Um, and I wanted to underline um, that. No, these, this is a product of more recent history. Mm -hmm. um, this is a product of, you know, there's a lot of talk about racism as a disease, as a, as a pandemic, as a cancer. And mm -hmm. I understand the illusions. But no, racism is a product of public policy decisions that are made on a daily basis. It is the product of actions taken in the private sector on a daily basis. It is not ancient history. It is decisions that are made in the here and now as part of our contemporary lives that African-Americans have to contend with um, in this country. And so I wanted to uh, kind of make sense of that evolution of uh, the, the, the Democratic Party, its impact on policy uh, today to raise the bigger question about, can we rely on the, the same figures uh, whose politics and actions created this problem, can we rely on them to be the way out of it? 
Um, and Joe Biden is a particular figure from who comes into office in 1973 in the aftermath of the, the, the black insurgency uh, of the 1960s, is a pivotal figure um, in the conservative turn in Democratic Party um, uh, uh, politics, you know, is, is part of the raised expectations um, that come crashing down in the Obama administration and now has the gall and the audacity to present himself as the harbinger uh, of change. Um, so I wanted to talk about those issues. No, thank you. And Mark, you in your comment were already was we're already thinking about co-optation and how this movement can go from radical to sort of politics as usual. Um, I was curious uh, if you could expand on that a little bit more. Last night you held a really wonderful town hall on BET, which featured a wide range of speakers from politicians like Stacey Abrams to kind of more like radical imaginative thinkers like Brittany Packnett and Imani Perry. Um, could you say a little bit about sort of what you heard from them and what you've been thinking in terms of how we keep a radical imaginary as we go forward in this movement? Yeah, I, I think it's it's a great question. I, I think that there's certainly a wide range of, of thinkers on this. And, and last night, you know, sitting down with Stacey Abrams, for example, is a good example. Mm -hmm. um, Stacey Abrams has consistently sort of argued um, for a, a more expansive political imagination, consistently argued that we need to imagine the world differently, that there are new possibilities. But then there are these moments where she stops short. Mm. Um, and those moments where she stops short are precisely the places where we need her at this juncture in history. And that's not a specific critique to Stacey Abrams as much as it is to say, we're, we're always constrained by the pragmatic. We're always confined by this idea that the world is on fire. And if we don't intervene at this moment with this pragmatic solution, then there will be no recovering. And so we, at Sakanga's point, we don't just end up with the same types of people. We literally end up with the same people. <laughs> we literally end up with the author of the crime. <laughs> we literally, right. and, and, and so, under under that kind of, of of condition, the conversation moves and then it put then it, then it steps back. And those types of fits and starts are normal in history with any kind of any kind of political project. It's never a clean, you know, journey from from zero to one hundred. I'm fine with that, but I need to make sure that we're talking in a way that gets us somewhere else. I understand that we need to allow for the urgency of Trump. I do, and, mm -hmm. and Trump is not simply a an extreme iteration of what we've already seen, but he is the culmination of it. And so we can't pretend that somehow eliminating Trump gets us back to a healthy or progressive state. It gets us back to where we were three years ago, which was untenable for the most vulnerable people in this in this in this world, but specifically in the United States, and more specifically black, brown, and working class people. So yeah. for me, the conversation has to be both and we have to be able to have folk who can who can call who can call out Trump and say, hey, this is this is a whole different sort. This is a whole different thing that's happening. But at the very same time, not pretend that he's some political alien that isn't constituted by all these other historical and, and economic forces and all these institutional mm. arrangements and, 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 and policy decisions that have been made, to Kianga's point. So for me, that kind of that kind of threading of a needle uh, at the analytic level is key. And I'm not sure I'm seeing that in our political discourse. Um, because it's it's so easy at this junction to just appeal to the practical. Like, look, we got to get rid of Trump. We don't have time to think about. We can't talk abolition. Let's let, so so we we ease the language back to defunding, and before you know it, we're back to reform, right? Mm. And and so I I loved having Brittany on. I, I enjoy um, the conversation. Uh, Brittany uh, Pack Packnet, that is. 
um, specifically with regard to this issue of policing. And it was a great, it's a great conversation to have. The work that she's doing, the work that Dorey McKesson are doing is uh, in some ways gesturing toward what we need to be doing. But in practice, the, the, the devil is in the details. And, and the right. details as they're laid out right now get us back in many ways through other means, but certainly get us back to this place of of of, rev, of 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 needing the police and centering the police. Joe Biden has a more progressive agenda potentially than, say, Donald Trump, but there's no fundamental shift in how we think about the economy. There's no fundamental shift in what we think workers' rights are. There's no fundamental shift in how we think about protections. And so at the end of the day, we end up back with an exploited class of people. And the fact that Joe Biden will open the doors to the White House once again for the Black managerial class and for the black leadership class mm-hmm. um, well, is appealing to some, but it also is an invite to sort of, again, smuggle in neoliberal politics through other, through other language, but the very same practices. And, and so it, there, there are moments of, of, of possibility. I mean, Brittany Cooper offers a wonderful critique of, of white supremacy. Amani Perry you know, dares us, as she always does in her work, to imagine new political futures and new political possibilities. And there's that, but it, but then there's also this other conversation that is that is shrouded in, in in the language of the practical, but really becomes another excuse to 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 be afraid to dream and and to have a, a real audacious freedom dream here. And mm-hmm. and again, I, I don't want to squander this moment, and and I, and I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but I am terrified that this moment, which is rich with opportunity, is going to be squandered if we if if we are too afraid of Trump. Again, be very clear. I'm not saying we don't need to get rid of Trump as a priority, but we, but, but if we're so afraid that we don't demand anything better of ourselves and the pol- and our politicians and our activists for, for that for that for that for that matter. Mm. Both of you. Can I, have- can I just say uh, one thing? Um, I I think that what usually happens in um, any movement, and I think that this actually began to happen uh, in the aftermath of. Uh, Black Lives Matter in 2014, 2015, um, is that people sort themselves out. And there will be people for whom um, defunding is enough. I think defunding is good. I don't think it is abolition. Mm-hmm. I think it's a different thing. But um, I think it is on the pathway to seeing the police as um, uh, a problem that we need to deal with instead of just passively uh, accepting uh, their their presence. But there are other people who, one, think even that is too extreme. Uh, the Democratic Party just introduced legislation uh, today called Just Policing, whatever the hell that is supposed <laughs> to mean, um, of which the question about funding and, and all that is not uh, uh, apparent at all. And so you will have uh, liberals who coalesce around um, uh, one set uh, of, of ideas, uh, people who are um, either on on the left, but have a different conception of uh, how you deal with certain reforms. You'll have people who are like, none of this, we need to abolish the police. And then the vast majority of people vacillating or drifting between all of those. And so to me, what is important in the moment then is do we create the um, political space for these debates to actually be had out? So that they're not just Twitter beefs. They're, they don't turn into acrimony. They don't turn into weird things. But th- these are political ideas and political positions that people have and that we should debate. We should argue about them. We should, you know, do all those sorts of things. 
And where we can agree, we come together and fight around a specific issue. Where we don't, you know, we might part company momentarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that's a that's a natural to me. That's a natural thing that happens in political movements. Everyone does not think the same thing. People have uh, consciousness. Ideas are very fluid. They're moving around. They're influenced by what is happening um, on the ground, and we have to allow room and space uh, uh, for that to be able to influence each other. Think about what you know. Uh, other people are bringing into the debate so that we can figure out um, more strategically what are the most effective tactics to move us from where we currently are to where it is that we want to be. I think my concern, I agree. And I think one of the challenges is in this moment, and part of it is this normal sort of mainstream liberal politics, and part of it is, again, the urgency and fear of Trump, mm-hmm. that there's no space to have that conversation. Right, right. Even in the primaries, I mean, or even- Yes. I mean, there was a moment where there were 74 candidates and we still weren't allowed to talk about having these conversations, right? right. <laughs> it was like, if we're just give, we're just helping Trump win, right? I mean, right, it's like, it's, right, right. when is the moment where we can have a robust conversation instead of debates about domestic and foreign policy, about the economy? About, it's like, there's no moment to have it now. If we even hold, if we even challenge Joe Biden on the most fundamental thing, it's you're now aiding and abetting uh, a, a second term of Trump. And, right. and, and so for me, that kind of... Mm-hmm. Fear and narrow politics, it, it doesn't it doesn't allow us to have the kind of robust conversation you're talking about, which again is is absolutely necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Do you guys have thoughts on how to keep that space alive? I mean, I think that's what protest has in mind, but there's perhaps not a way to keep this going on the street level for months and months. I mean, to me, I don't I don't think that the Democratic Party is not opening this space for us to to have mm-hmm. this. Uh, conversation. I mean, they won't even have it in their own party amongst them <laughs> themselves, you know, where Bernie Sanders is treated, you know, like a pariah uh, who should be kept locked in the closet. Um, but I think that as a as a left, um, as as people who uh, want to develop politics independent of whatever the Democratic Party does, um, that we have to fight for those uh, spaces. We have to insist on them. And Mark is a is a exemplary example uh, of that. Uncle Bobby's prior to this, you know, ridiculous pandemic. Every week, uh, author meetings, you know, uh, every you know Malcolm X's birthday, like every opportunity is an opportunity to bring people in to have debates, to have discussions, and to try to figure some of these things out. And so we have to have. Uh, dedicated spaces um, and intentional spaces and in, an intentional plan to develop that because that's mm. the only way our side will ever be able to come up with a, a coherent plan strategy for what it is that we need to do to advance our own agenda, irrespective of what the two main political parties um, decide amongst themselves. We have our own ideas about what needs to happen to get the the, the better world that we all uh, that we all want. But we have to um, ensure that the uh, opportunities and and space for having those discussions um, together, uh, but also in writing um, and developing a writing culture uh, uh, where where we also think about these ideas. 
that all of that is, is a part of the process um, of rebuilding a political left uh, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mark, did you want to say a little bit about abolition and defunding and some of these words that we're using now and the kind of spectrum that Kianga laid out from, I guess, the sort of reformist priorities to something more visionary? I mean, Kianga actually made a really important point. It's one that Ruth Gilmore has made around reform. I mean, the, the sort of simple answer is to say we can have this radical revolutionary transformative process or we can just deal with reform. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we can use the language of reform. Uh, we, can, we can be dismissive of reform. And, and, and what what uh, a better way to think about this, and I, th- I think what's been argued, is that ref- it, it, reform as such is not the problem, as long as reform is a step toward yes. abolition, right? And, and it, it, as long as as long as it's a reform that gets us in the direction of where we need to be, I'm fine with that. Um, you know, there's been a long-standing debate among prison abolitionists in general about what types of uh, of reforms constitute. Uh, and a, a proper reform, mm-hmm. you know, bu- building a library in a prison, um, giving condoms in a prison, uh, lowering the price of phone calls in a prison are all three are three very distinct things, which which do three, three very different mm-hmm. can yield three very different outcomes. Mm-hmm. One can make the the lives of people more bearable. It's a humane thing to do for people who are already caged. Another. Uh, you know, takes an economic weight and helps dismantle, can actually help to dismantle an, uh, the prison industrial complex because there's less money to be made from it. And one can make you think that if we just had shinier, warmer and fuzzier prisons, mm-hmm. that we could, that prisons are, are the, themselves not the problem, but it's the way we do prison, right? That police are not mm-hmm. the problem, but it's the way we do policing. And so for me, it's not reform as such, but it's a type of reforms that we offer. And so, yes. So when people talk about the abolition of police, ultimately, for me, that means that we want to work toward a world where police will no longer be the way we resolve social contradictions, the way we deal with harm, the way we address crisis. Not that there won't be public safety, not that there can't be other possibilities for how we deal with these things, because there are very real dangers in the world that we have to be attentive to. But the idea is that the current model of policing, the current idea of policing, that policing itself is not the way to respond to that. That's different than saying we're going to take money out of the policing budget and put it in these other areas so that police don't have as, so that police don't have as much work to do. Right. Which, again, <laughs> in some ways is a good thing because I don't want police responding to my uncle who's passed out with an overdose or or to resolve a petty conflict of, of two neighbors arguing when the police show up and someone ends up getting killed because of that. Right. I get that. But if but but defunding the police in some ways could just end up taking all the, the light work off the police's plate and they have more time to target and occupy and militarize in our neighborhoods. Mm. That's not the right answer. So we have to think about when we use language of, of, of defunding, it has to be accompanied by an abolitionist vision. If it's not accompanied by an abolitionist vision, then all we're doing is saying, you know what, y'all got 10, 10 things on your plate. We only want to give y'all five. And that's, that's not that's not the end. That can't be the end. It has to be on the way to something else. And I'm worried that the language of defunding, just like the language of prison reform, can become something that, that doesn't have the abolitionist end, but simply is, is it thinks that these structures themselves are still sustainable, that they're still viable options. And they're not. They don't work. And that's why, you know, Kianga's point was so important, which is, we have to have reforms that still construct within the within the collective public or collective imagination the police as the problem, not the only problem, but as the problem, prison as the problem, and of course all the other accompanying systems at the at, at, at the undergirding at the the bottom layer, of course, is capitalism, right? So so I don't want to I don't want to take that off the table. We have to be clear and honest about that. But 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 the police as problem, prison as problem, is something we have to keep at the center of our conversation. If we don't, we will lose our way. Mm-hmm. 
I'm curious what you guys would think then about the discussion in Minneapolis proper. Um, we have a question from the audience. Sam Crossley wants to know um, if you guys have a comment on the kind of divesting and dismantling vocabulary that's been used at the Minnesota City Council or the Minneapolis City Council now in relation to the police. I, I will I will say that um, I don't think it, I, I haven't read through uh, what all the proposals are, but I will say that in my book from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, um, I wrote some about Camden, New Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, where the police were also dismantled, um, uh, disbanded in 2014. Um, and what we found there uh, is that um, uh, police murders and uh, uh, reports of abuse had gone down uh, quite extensively. On the other hand, um, the police sort of shifted from just being brutal and stomping people to writing an inordinate amount uh, of tickets and fining people uh, 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 um, repeatedly. So for example, um, uh, one of the things I write about is how tickets for not wearing a bicycle helmet uh, not wearing a helmet when bicycling uh, tripled or quadrupled um, uh, mm-hmm. compared to what it had been um, previous. And so, you know, it's like what Mark is saying. No one is interested in cha- exchanging one form uh, of uh, police abuse for a new form of police exploitation. Um, right. What what we are, are looking to do um, is to rid our communities uh, of police, which do nothing to uh, alleviate crime. Uh, police don't stop crime. They show up after crimes have been uh, committed when they are not directly involved in criminal enterprise themselves. Uh, they absorb critical uh, uh, public funds and expenditures um, that uh, are needed and necessary, actually, uh, to deal with the problems that we have uh, in, in, in our society. Uh, police leech. Um, from that. And so to me, unless that is the dynamic that is being uh, addressed um, in Minneapolis or wherever these kinds of proposals begin um, to emerge, uh, then, you know, we're sort of doing a a -a whack-a-mole. You know, it's like you push down on one place over here, but then some other form uh, of police abuse and violence appears uh, over over there. Um, What I think is, is probably more interesting right now is how uh, the University of Minnesota uh, cut ties with uh, the the Minneapolis Police Department and said, we don't actually want you on our campus. Mm -hmm. Um, And it appears that uh, the uh, public schools um, in the city have also said, we don't want you on our campus. And so to me, um, that's a a kind of more localized version uh, of, of police abolition. Uh, get off of our campuses, get yes. out of our uh, uh, out of our lives. We will figure out how to deal with, uh, uh, you know, disturbances or whatever um, in these scenarios uh, without the police. Um, and so right. that to me is a more promising immediate model, which shows that this doesn't need to take forever. This we don't need to, you know, him and ha about this, you know, for, for years on end, that's something that can be decided 
uh, uh, over a weekend, uh, long enough for you to call a meeting, to assemble a, an agenda, to get some people in a room and to take a vote. Get out. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to pick up on something you started talking about, Mark, which is capitalism. Um, of course, that was undergirding Kinga's <laughs> comments as well. Um, but we have a, a an audience member, um, Feline Bobier, who wanted to know about the possibilities of working class solidarity in this movement. So one of the main examples that's been cited a lot in the media is transit workers refusing to transport demonstrators for the cops and other sorts of interventions like that. Um, and I would just take that question one step further and ask you, is this a working class movement or can this be translated into a working class movement mark do you want to start uh yeah i'll say a little bit i feel like this is kanga's expertise more than mine but <laughs> i i i would i would say first of all absolutely uh working class solidarity is key uh uh in in this movement and it, it doesn't mean that we don't take seriously the specific uh uh, racial dimensions of this movement and that mm -hmm. we don't take seriously the unique threats that white supremacy operate, uh, uh, the, the, the unique threats of white, that white supremacy offer to, to black people, uh, specifically in the United States. And, and of course, there's a, there's a moment where the white working class, whether it's through, whether it's in everyday life, whether it's in unions, et cetera, have to think very seriously about white privilege, about white power structures, about the ways that black people have been excluded, even from working class movements. I mean, all mm -hmm. of that has to be part of the conversation here. But if we're going to dismantle the system itself, if we're going to dismantle a system that is white supremacist, if we're going to dismantle an imperialist system, and if we're going to dismantle um, a system where the police are largely there to protect property of, 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 of the wealthy, then we have to, at, at the core, understand that white supremacy and racism, while they are significant things that we have to deal with and they're very real, they can only exist within the context of a state that defends class at all costs. Mm -hmm. And so, we, we we can't we can't disentangle those things and 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 the work the white working class also has to understand that their own liberation and economic freedom is tied directly to dismantling these systems so even if it's purely out of self-interest this thing has to happen in addition to the kind of human compulsion of this but that also means that we have to have a more robust conversation when Nike says you know make makes an anti uh, uh anti-racist uh campaign we have to hold them accountable to what happens to workers we have to hold them accountable right. to what happens in Latin America. Right. When when Ben and Jerry's makes an anti makes a, a, a slow a, a campaign in favor of Black Lives Matter, we have to say, hey, wait a minute now. You know, one of the policy demands of, yeah. of for black lives is also dismantling these illegal settlements in, in, in Israel, yes. you know, you know. And, and so and there's Ben and Jerry's in, in East Jerusalem, you know, so so. Part of that solidarity has to come both at the transnational level, but even even inside. We have to look at these various movements and, and, and the various ways that we're tied together. Um, but it doesn't mean that this movement becomes uh, colorblind or race neutral or that we transform a, a very specific conversation about the way that the state wields its power against black people in America to, to mm -hmm. a, 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 a multicultural sort of movement that doesn't have any real teeth. I think we can do both at the same time. We can uh, account for the race, the race and racialized dimensions, but also have a more robust, converse, robust conversation about the interconnectedness of our struggles. That's really helpful. Kanga, did you want to add to that at all? Um, I, I will just say that I think that one aspect of the demonstrations, the marches um, so far has been its multiracial uh, character. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, in Boise, Idaho, 
I don't even know if they're black people in Boise, Idaho. I'm sure I'm sure there's some of us there, but it's three. You know, <laughs> there was a, a demonstration at the um, at the at the Capitol of it looked like, you know, five, I think the report said five, six or seven thousand people um, in Portland, Maine. Uh, Maine is the whitest state in the United States. Um, there, you know, were thousands of people, yeah. uh, who were mobilized, um, around this and it's not, okay, we're mobilizing to talk about our own little thing. It's around black lives matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, I think this is, uh, two things. I think one is that, uh, the COVID crisis has really exposed the, um, the deep, class divisions that mm-hmm. uh, uh, exist in the United States. I mean, obviously, African-Americans are suffering the brunt of the COVID crisis. 23 or 24,000 uh, uh, Black people have died as a result of the disease. One in every 2,000 African-Americans is dead uh, because of, mm-hmm. of COVID. Um, so that cannot be uh, underestimated or uh, diminished in any sense. Um, but it has also shown um, how the rich look out for themselves, right? The, the, the rich, uh, uh, in, in effect, cushion themselves with the bodies of uh, low-wage essential workers um, to protect themselves from the ravages uh, of, this, uh, of this disease. They make sure that, you know, when there is any financial assistance, they get a $500 billion slush fund mm-hmm. uh, for corporate America and everyone else gets at most a $1,200 check, which you may get by the end of, of August. Um, and so the, the, the kind of um, uh, uh, class nature of the U.S. ruling class uh, right now uh, and their complete contempt for anyone else uh, is, is showing its teeth. And I think that you combine that with the phenomenon uh, over the last few years, which I've talked about uh, more than a few times, uh, which is how the life expectancy of ordinary white men and women has gone into reverse. And mm. this does not happen in the developed world. And it is being driven by alcoholism, opioid addiction, and suicide. And so that also speaks of the extraordinary class warfare uh, directed at ordinary people. Um, in this in this country. And I think that is one factor. The second one, I think, is that Black Lives Matter has been successful as yeah. a social movement. It yeah. has transformed the uh, ideas about race, about policing in this country. In effect, it has made Black Lives Matter to Absolutely. millions of white people. It has told people that you must listen, you must speak up, you must do something about racism and, and people are doing something and mm-hmm. they might not be doing it all in, in the most, you know, effective way every day, but people are trying to do something and they're showing up by the, the tens of thousands across this, this country to stand up against racism. And just like I was saying before, for the left, we have to build on that. Right. We have to build on the kind of uh, uh, knee jerk reaction um, that is disgusted by the lynching that took place in Minneapolis, but that know 
that that's not the only place that these things happen. And that we can build that on that into an analysis about a, a country that uses racism uh, to extract and exploit from black people, uh, but also uh, uh, does that to distract white people from the ways that they are also extracted and exploited uh, right. uh, within, uh, within this society. And so to me, that has been one of the most inspiring parts uh, of this. This country is deeply polarized. We have the right has been growing uh, because you have a, a, a white supremacist in the, in the White House, but the left is growing as well. A broad sentiment that we should have in the richest country in the history of humanity uh, uh, a, a better life for people. That's what the, the Sanders campaign and the, the enthusiasm for that uh, was about. And that's what these mass demonstrations that will not end uh, is about. Thank you guys so much. And I really appreciate both of you putting our country's experience in international context as well. I'd wanted mm -hmm. to ask you what you think about the fact that these protests are also spreading across the world. And we see actions in Ghana and England and Japan and Australia and Brazil. And these are places that have radically different social and racial structures from us. But of course, there are similarities and shared austerities and that we're all coming out against. Um, what yeah. do you think about this international aspect and where do we take it, Mark? No, I mean, that's one of the things that, that's exciting to me is to look at the kind of uh, international or, or even transnational um, resistance movements that, that have emerged in, in the, or, or not at the, that are showing their faces with mm -hmm. regard in response to this particular moment. And I think you've hit the nail on the head with, with a few things. One, there's people. The experience of being black in America is a very specific one, mm -hmm. but the experience of being a racialized body mm. is not specific to the United States. And, yeah. and the way that particular groups are racialized and rendered expendable, vulnerable, uh, disposable by the state is, is, is an experience that many, many people share across the board. You add that to, the, like you said, this, these, these economic shifts and these radical economic shifts and reforms that are happening within particular, whether it's austerity, whether it's the, the post-Brexit moment, whether mm -hmm. it's austerity policies in places like Greece, whether it's um, the, you know, just shrinking labor markets uh, in, in, in North Africa. There are all these interesting moments where people are feeling a, a, both increasingly vulnerable uh, by the state um, for economic reasons and increasingly vulnerable to state violence. And so when you see that happening, it's not surprising to me that you see people saying, wait a minute here, there's a common thread here. There's a common right. system. There's a common oppressor. I mean, I'm thinking back to Bandung in 55 in the sort of this moment mm -hmm. where, where, where you have this sort of Afro-Asian solidarity that's built a, a, a largely around this idea that there's a common oppression, there's a co common system. That's what Malcolm was responding to, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that moment is 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 upon us again. And I think that, it's interesting, I got a call this morning, I hope he doesn't mind, uh, Omar Barghouti, uh, oh. the uh, founder of BDS, he sent me, an, actually, he, he texted me last night and said, hey, what can we do to demonstrate our solidarity with this movement? We wanna make sure that we're operating in step with you. What are your needs? What are your uh, what, what are your demands specifically so that we can be supportive in the ways that you need to, I'm saying that in response to the second part of your question, which is what do we do with this? I think we have to find ways to be supportive of one another. We have to find ways to figure out what each other's needs are. But th but our, the idea of finding each other's needs and support and, and, and producing solidarity should not hinge on sameness. 
we can mm-hmm. concede that there are unique contextual differences, that there are unique formations of power that are that differ from place to place, from context to context. But that, but our our ability to work with to, with one another to dismantle these systems of oppression don't have to hinge on us saying, oh, I can work with them because yeah, we get beat by the state the same way, or they're black right. folk over there too. But that there's a common structure and system a, a, around the globe that that keeps poor people. At the, at the foot of state power. And, 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 and that's what we need to challenge and push back against and, and, and dismantle. That's very clarifying. Thank you. Kana? I would just, I would just say, um, I think that that is, is absolutely right. And I, I would say that I think it, it's some of the same phenomenon, which is, um, you know, the particular experiences of black Americans are, are one thing, but uh, there's a global experience with uh, colonialism, with slavery, uh, that produces similar dynamics elsewhere. And you map that onto the way that COVID has cut through the globe, uh, exposing uh, these, you know, not just the, 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 the class differences in that, that rich people are able to, uh, um, even if this started out as a rich person's disease, uh, that they are able to protect themselves with their wealth um, and that the burden is borne mostly uh, of poor and working class people who are disproportionately uh, black and brown um, around uh, the globe. And I think the, 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 the close proximity uh, of uh, the, the, the COVID crisis has brought um, these tensions and antagonisms that are typically hidden to the surface of society uh, across the world. And so you have very similar dynamics in the UK. Um, that it is disproportionately black and brown people uh, who are dying uh, as a result uh, uh, of the of the virus. Uh, mm-hmm. You have the same, uh, you know, so you have the same phenomena across Europe. Uh, you have poor people uh, who are mostly impacted um, uh, in uh, elsewhere uh, in the in the in the globe, and then you have the example of black Americans who historically um, have been uh, uh, who struggle has been a source of inspiration um, uh, for people uh, around the world because this is the the, the most oppressive, the most exploitative uh, uh, country. And there's a sense that um, black people who uh, uh, can fight and stand up uh, to uh, the US government, the belly in the belly of the beast Mm -hmm. um, is a a source of inspiration. And African-American struggles has all historically have been informed uh, uh, by anti-colonial uh, uh, movements. So there's always been that kind of mix and that kind of uh, uh, connection that expresses itself dramatically um, in certain moments in, in history. And we are seeing um, that now. And I think that this particular iteration of the Black struggle has been a demonstration and has shown people, white people in this country, immigrants in this country, and then people around the world, this is how you fight back right now. This is what you have to do uh, uh, to confront the forces of capital, uh, uh, and the, the, the political ruling class who are willing to stand back and watch us die so that they can get back to business, so that they can open up and not spend resources necessary for welfare states. They might have welfare states in Europe, but they have been trying for the last decade to make their welfare state look like the shithole that we have in this country. They have been trying to do that through neoliberal policies. And so this, the explosion, the eruption of black people has provided 
a model for people around the world to stand up to uh, uh, neoliberalism, to stand up uh, uh, to the class division that has been exposed, the race and class division that has been exposed uh, through the COVID crisis. Mm. Thank you both so much. And kind of staying on that topic of the kind of international dimension, I think there's a bit of a parallel also between the local police departments that we have hundreds of police departments, sheriff offices around the country, and then Customs and Border Patrol, and then the U.S. military, and what those entities look like and how they police bodies as well here and abroad. And one of our audience members, Keith Fitzgerald, was curious to hear from you guys if you had reflections on military counterinsurgency tactics that and how those tactics are then being used or replicated in local police departments. And I guess I would say just more broadly, if you wanted to talk about whether you think this move against the police to try to abolish the police to look for other models of public safety can also be extrapolated to federal forces. Yeah, I think one, I, I, there's no prison, abol- there's no abolition movement that doesn't, in my experience, call for both abolition of police, abolition of prisons, abolition of ICE, abolition, of, because these things are all so, so tightly woven together. Yeah. Um, and, and quite frankly, I mean, when we saw this actually last week with, with President Trump, who said, if the police don't do their job, I'm going to bring the military in to, to mm. dominate this. I mean, the language of domination. I mean, it, if I were writing a script for an evil dictator, I mean, this is the kind of language I'd be using, right? It almost seems too melodramatic. But right. but, but, but if we don't have similar constraints placed in, in certain certain similar uh, reimagination, a similar reimagination of what the role that each of these institutions play, then all we're going to do is, is substitute one for the other in ways that are deeply problematic. Um, the other thing, is we have to look at the increasingly blurred line between these institutions. I mean, one of the things I talk about in my book, Nobody, is this idea of how police forces have become increasingly militarized. That's the reason why Katherine Johnson in Atlanta, a 90-year-old woman, you know, what, almost 10 years ago, I mean, they're, they're kick, the SWAT team is kicking in her door and, and killing her on her couch, very similar to what we saw uh, with Breonna Taylor. These very same townships and cities that don't have money for body cameras or dashboard cameras have grenade launchers. And so we have we, we we often have the kind of military militarization of local police forces anyway. So we have to sort of reimagine that in addition to thinking more deeply about the role that the military is going to play in occupying public space and, again, resolving social crises. This is all part of the abolition conversation. And 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 quite frankly, it's one that we do need to have at a global level. Again, I do my 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 field work in Palestine and that where, where the distinction between police and military is 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 largely immaterial in in, mm-hmm. in context. If you're in East Jerusalem, I mean, whether you get stopped by a green uniform or blue uniform is probably the only difference as a practical matter in terms of your everyday life uh, in many places. And so that same sort of lack of distinction that you see there or that you see in Egypt, uh, you, you're now beginning to see in the United States at at, at, at greater um, at, at greater volume. I was I was at the uh, the drugstore literally one block from my house, uh, and there were armed soldiers there with, with with machine guns. And I said, why are you guys here? And he said, oh, we're just making sure that people can shop safely. And I'm thinking, who the hell? Oh. <laughs> well, I want to get some eggs. I feel much better now knowing <laughs> that there's 10 people with, with AK-47. Like that, that, that no. But, 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 wow. but that's become our new norm and that has to be dismantled as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's also the the question of, de- of detainment and, and and immigration that we should also talk about. But but at the core, I think the both the 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 pulling out of of, of the of these institutions from their roles, but also 
stopping the bleeding across these across these lines, I think, is super critical because right now we almost can't tell the difference. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Kinga. I have nothing to add to that. (laughs) Brilliantly put. Yeah. I wanted to shift gears briefly to talk about women, to talk about black women and black trans people in liberation movements. And I really admire that both of you have spent a lot of your popular writing and your scholarship um, devoted to lifting up women. And obviously the trigger for this particular wave of protests was the murder of George Floyd. But in the same period, we saw the killing of Breonna Taylor. We saw the killing of black trans man, Tony McDade. And I know, Mark, you put out a, a really great video editorial for the GRIA last week in which mm-hmm. you discuss an attack on Ayanna Dior in Minnesota. And you also address the comparative neglect of Breonna Taylor, of Tony McDade, of Nina Pop. So I was wondering if both of you could talk a little bit about women in this movement and why there's some erasure sometimes of Black women, of Black trans bodies in Black Lives Matter. Well, I would just say that... Um Again, sort of thinking about how um, I wrote about this earlier, um, but about the way that this iteration of the Black Lives Matter um, movement is, uh, is, is really um, built upon the foundation that was established um, in the previous mm-hmm. uh, period, 2014 uh, and 2015. And to that same extent, I think that the quickness with which uh, uh, people have been able to uh, raise that inconsistency in attention around Breonna Taylor, uh, uh, around uh, the killing of trans men and women. Um, it has been a, a quick transition, I think, because of uh, the the work that has been done um, previously. I don't think it's um, it's enough. Uh, but I think that it has uh, started um, at a much higher level uh, than it has in previous kind of movement mm-hmm. uh, moments. And I think that is a, a testament uh, to um, the work that was done in the movement for Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement um, previously. I think the emphasis on uh, the, the whole hashtag of Say Her Name um, and the insistence yeah. on uh, understanding, absorbing, um, and uh, analyzing and uh, uh, protesting against the murder of uh, Black women by the state, even raising that as an issue that the state actually does uh, uh, murder and attack uh, um, Black women. Um, and I think that the, the organizing um, of the, the, the previous period uh, really zeroing in on the particular vulnerability uh, of trans women of color, uh, who, who I think have uh, a lifespan of like 35 years. Um, as a, as yeah. if you want to understand the degree of terror uh, mm-hmm. that uh, is, is involved in uh, what it means to be a trans woman, woman of color, then uh, absorb that uh, statistic. And the only reason we know about any of this is because uh, organizers, many of whom uh, are, are black women, uh, are uh, uh, trans women of color, insisted that we know this. Yes. Um, and I think that now uh, that in many places, uh, these women um, are playing leadership roles in uh, local protests because there, there's a duality. There's the kind of 
uh, riot uh, kind of reaction to uh, the provocations of the police. But there's a lot of organizing going on. There's a lot of demonstrations that are being called. Um, there are actions that are being called. And, and, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine in Chicago yesterday, uh, and they were saying, you know, that on any given day in the last couple of weeks, there have been uh, somewhere between six and eight protests uh, around the city. So people are organizing that. And a lot of times um, it's black women uh, who are at the, uh, the helm. So I feel like now we are seeing the continuation um, the the maturation of uh, the emergence of this political leadership, which really uh, took firm root um, in the 2014-15 period. Mm. Mark, how do we keep yeah, this no, going? How do we keep I, this emphasis going? I think we have to continue to lean on uh, this this new leadership body that's emerged in the last five years. I mean, mm. to Kanga's point, the the emergence of an internationalist perspective is also accompanied by a, 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 a conversation about a more expansive understanding of, of of who we're fighting for and what we're fighting for and what the face of these movements would be. Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Opal Tometi did an extraordinary thing uh, with Black Lives Matter, and and it has to, to King's point has mattered uh, in so many ways. Uh, but the face of leadership and the and the and the type of folk we're willing to advocate for and fight for um, has been fr- has been has been put at the forefront. Now, the public following that has been a challenge, right? Getting mm-hmm. pu- Getting the public to care uh, about black death has always been an uphill struggle. Right. When you get the black queer folk, when you get the black trans folk, when you get the just black women, it becomes a, a harder it becomes a harder road. Getting people to fight for Sandra Bland or Renisha McBride mm-hmm. with the same intensity as Trayvon Martin or Michael Brown has never been easy. And so for me, but, but for me, the um, to watch Ayanna Dior be beaten in the very same city that sparked yeah. this global resistance. For me, was 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 a was a disturbing and chilling irony, mm-hmm. um, and so for me, that's why I raised it up because it's something we have to be mindful of that we that we have to be able to fight for those lives and represent those people with the same intensity and same care and the same passion. But I think we're in the right direction. The fact that okay. we can, and that's Kanga's point, right? That we can even the fact that we were even having this conversation. Right. Is something that we weren't doing even ten years ago. It was mm-hmm. in the same way, um, and and that and that's accompanied by all kinds of other stuff, class politics as well, right? We have to put Trayvon on a horse, and we have to say Michael Brown was going to you know college on Monday before he does right, to, right. Make, to make these people legible and human. Yeah, and unfortunately, even internally, this idea that black trans folk are human, the idea that black women are human and worth mourning and worth and worth fighting for, and whose deaths are worth avenging, that's part part of that sort of language. But it, it, yeah. is is the kind of um, it's, some, it's, it's, it's still an uphill battle, but I think we've at least established a framework that that's what we're supposed to be doing. And so this idea of all Black Lives Mattering becomes significant. Um, mm-hmm. And that's been essential to the project over the last five or six years. And so I am I'm very frustrated and very sad at, at the, that we still have to have this conversation right. and that we can fundraise for George Floyd at five times the rate sometimes as Breonna Taylor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm also um, energized by the fact that there's a space to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you so much. I wanted to give our speakers a tiny break before I bring in some other audience questions. And and I wanted to let you guys know about two upcoming events in this live stream series from Haymarket. A few days from now on June 13th or Juneteenth, Haymarket and Critical Resistance will co-host a conversation with Mark, our wonderful Mark, and Charlene Carruthers. So please don't miss that on Juneteenth. 
And then on June 18th, Ibram X. Kendi and Dereka Purnell will discuss raising anti-racist kids. So we hope parents in particular will join us for that event. They're both, um, you can register for both of them on Eventbrite. Um, Kinga and Mark, I wanted to ask you a question that Young Paduan poses, which is, how do you see the media's role in covering the current uprising? Have they done an okay job? What are the sort of biases you see emerging? Obviously, you're both media actors as well, so you're um, you're sharing your own critiques through your prose. But if you had thoughts generally on the depictions and the language being used, Kinga, do you want to start? Um, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I you know, I I think that uh, the media. Uh, focus, I think, probably shifted um, because of the uh, insistence on the, not just activists, the ordinary people on the ground who've been populating uh, these protests. I guess what I mean is that early on, I think that there was the kind of typical narrative of, oh, violence, um, oh, woe is me, there's a riot, um, there's a fire in Minneapolis, oh God, you know, this is, this this kind of um, alarmist dismay. And I think that um, people on the ground, because they were armed with, uh, you know, these smartphones and uh, able to take video of police provocation um, and police violence. I mean, I, I think in many ways you could say that there was a kind of um, police riot uh, that happened in cities across the country and in places where there were violent reactions, it was often in response to police provocation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that um, most of that was missed by the media uh, initially, but I think the duration of the protests um, and the uh, ability for people to capture uh, and to narrate their own stories through social media platforms where you don't need the media um, meant that the media had to had to catch up. And mm. so I, I think that the coverage changed um, and went from being antagonistic and hostile uh, to sympathetic about um, what the cops were doing to people, which is why you then instantly saw uh, the situation in Minneapolis. You saw with the talk about disbanding you know, I mean, whatever we think about the actual contents of what was happening, the idea that, you know, Minneapolis has been a, a story of police reform, right. you know, and so that they would actually talk about disbanding the police force um, is somewhat shocking uh, uh, to people. And so I think the media was forced to, you know, we know media is, is a corporation, it's owned by corporations, it has corporate sensibilities. Um, you know, so there's a market for this, the stuff that we're uh, talking about. I mean, you know, I'm writing columns in the New York Times because there's a market, you know, <laughs> for like these kinds of, of ideas. I'm not naive enough to believe that, you know, oh, you know, they just think that I have, you know, interesting insight into a particular <laughs> thing. It's, it's like, oh, yeah, the left, you know, the left buys newspapers and is interested in these ideas. Uh, is interested in, you know, the, the news as well. Um, so I think it, you know, 
it shifted, but it's still trash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, do you want to say anything yeah, I, about that? I don't, I don't watch cable news as much as I used to. Uh, <laughs> they kick uh, your ass off. Uh, right. So I may not be the best observer of this. Um, but what, what I would say is that I remember being on the ground in Ferguson and there'd be nights where we would get where the police would say, you know, you got five minutes to or 10 minutes to disband or else we're going to, you know, send smoke bombs. And after and then and after 10 minutes after the smoke bombs, we're going to send tear gas. And then you count to 10 and you're getting tear gas. I mean, mm. It was bizarre. And I and I I'd hear and I'd tweet, yo, getting tear gas. And people be like, No, you're not. I'm watching, you know, the cable outlets and they're saying there's no tear gas. And I'm like, No, I'm pretty sure I know a tear gas. You don't <laughs> tear gas isn't the kind of thing you mistake for something else, right? But it was social media and those platforms that created space for us to counter narrate what was happening to those mm-hmm. dominant media forms. Mm-hmm. And I think what we've seen this iteration is a wider network of, of spaces for counter narrating what corporate media is doing. And, and like and like all things, you know, they, they ground machine style, like they co-op the resistance. Right. So now you, you start to see on mainstream media more space for those radical left voice, mainstream newspapers, more more space for radical left wing voices because they don't want Twitter and Instagram mm-hmm. to get all, all all the good stuff, right? And so you start to see a little bit of a shift, right? Um, you start to hear the, you know, if you look at, there was a graph that looked at the, the term right and how many times it was used and to your extraordinary surprise, Fox News used it way more than the other two networks. <laughs> but what's what's more interesting than that is that there was a lot of space where people were saying uprisings and, and rebellions mm-hmm. and resistance, mm-hmm. which was far different than what we saw even five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. And so for me, um, that's a marker, again, of what's possible. It doesn't mean corporate media has changed. What it means is that the people have resisted and crafted their own tools of of, na- of, of self-narration that have forced the media to take a slightly more responsible position. And so, I mean, because this exact same thing in L.A. in 92, when there's three major corporate media outlets, plus, you know, CNN a little bit and plus, you know, PBS a little bit, you know, they would have just been talking about riots in the streets again and rebellions and people tearing down, you know, their own neighborhoods. And it would have been a very sort of monovocal kind of conversation about um, about what was happening, whereas you can't do that anymore. And, and I and I, I, I attribute that all to the, the people on the ground resisting who are telling their own stories. Wow, thank you, guys. I just have I just, one last question for you from the audience. Um, this is from Samira Ali, who's on the ground in Minneapolis. And the question is whether what you guys think about decentralized organizing. Um, they observed that last week, the, most of the protests were organized not by you know, Black Lives Matter or a centralized group, but by people who were angry, people who decided to make calls for people to gather. Um, And so maybe as a way of closing out, could you kind of comment on decentralization and sort of what that means going forward as we try to build this into a lasting movement? Uh, Let me say something real quick. I I can't get ahead of the last word because, again, I actually think she's more qualified to talk about this. I I, I think I would just say that I'm excited by that. I'm excited to see Mm. Not a sing- One of the great moments in Ferguson was when a certain civil rights leader got booed <laughs> coming out trying to tell people <laughs> what to do five days after they've been doing it for themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I like organization. I like I like leadership from context to context and moment to moment. But this idea of a singular voice or a messianic voice, this idea of a single body or institution directing our traffic and directing a movement, I think, is both antiquated and ineffective. And mm-hmm. so I like the fact. That, that that the leadership and the movements are, are, are kind of dispersed in various ways. And I also like the idea that some of this stuff is happening. Uh, it's not random, but it's spontaneous. Right. Right. It's not, you know, it's 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 not happening out of nowhere. It's happening with political purpose and strategy. But 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 I'm, I'm excited. 
I'm, I'm just so excited to see what's happening in Minneapolis and here in Philadelphia. I think it's a sign that uh, we've developed new leadership models, which may give us a better outcome than we've gotten before. Hmm. Um, I, I will just add on to that and say, I think that um, we need different types of organizing for different types of situations hmm. and that what works in the midst of an uprising um, and, and kind of emergent protest movement, like hours, days, even weeks into it, um, might not work six months from now uh, when you're confronted with the duplicitous uh, conniving of the Democratic Party uh, who, you know, or two months from now, who invite you to their convention uh, to give a speech and who have some really nice looking platform um, and, you know, who Joe Biden gives you a sweet sounding uh, speech. And then you look in and there are no uh, mechanisms uh, to um, actually enforce any of these new rules. And, you know, it's not clear how we make them uh, effective. That might require a, a different kind of uh, organi organizing uh, uh, strategic discussion and uh, deliberation about what type of tactics to um, employ. Uh, and so I think that we have to be dynamic and flexible um, and that the situation now uh, requires that. It does, you don't, you know, some, you don't need, uh, you know, a two hour meeting with a 10 point agenda uh, to figure out what to do right now, you know, right. you need to get in the streets, you know, if, if you're going into the streets or you need to organize this kind of meeting where you, you know, it's, it's like this, this part, we need flexibility, dynamism. Mm. It, it will look different a few months from now. Mm -hmm. And so then as to what I was saying earlier, then we have to have these spaces to discuss, to assess, to determine what it is that we need to do next. And out of that, um, I think, you know, there needs to be some kind of mechanisms of organizing organizational accountability. You know, people like to say there are no leaders. Of course, there are leaders. There are leaders in everything. It's, <laughs> it's are those leaders accountable to right. the group, the groups, whatever the formation is, or are they not? And so we need mechanisms uh, for that. It doesn't mean one big organization. There can be different kinds of organizations. But I do think that we need coordinated, some sort of coordination so that not so someone can dominate and tell people what to do, but so that we can learn from what mm -hmm. happens in L.A., what happens in Chicago, what happens in Philly, and what can we learn from these different examples what can we generalize from these different sets of uh, examples? What should we leave out from those uh, uh, experiences? You can't just do that on the fly. You can't just do that on Twitter. You can't just do that with you know three of your best friends. For that, you need some kind of organization accountability. Um, but even that doesn't have to exist for 40 years with the what? same people leading it, you know? <laughs> Um, and so I think that, you know, now is a time to be flexible, to be open, um, to be dynamic about these things um, and not to be rigid and say, we've done this one thing this one time. Thus, 
this is all we can ever do um, in the future. And I think it's a good time to read, to think about history, Mm -hmm. to connect with people who have organized in different eras uh, uh, and periods to what did they do? Everyone should be reading Angela Davis right now. Everyone should be reading Mike Davis exhaustively about the uh, uh, L.A. Rebellion, um, who has a new book out about um, uh, uh, organizing in Los Angeles in the uh, uh, 1960s. Everybody should be reading and talking and and collaborating and thinking uh, together, uh, because in many ways, to me, this is an unprecedented um, period. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, there's no rule book. There's no um, blueprint, as people uh, sometimes like to say. And so part of figuring it out involves a combination of history and politics um, and openness to to the newness uh, of the moment and also being influenced and swayed by that as well. Mm. Thank you both so much. Thank you. I really, um, you're two of the people I really want to hear from in this period. And um, I think a lot of our listeners feel the same way. So it means a lot that despite all of your commitments, you've been able to carve out this time. So thank you so much. Thanks. Um, before we close, I just wanted to ask that we all be as generous as we can and donate to Haymarket and Uncle Bobby's today. As we all know, radical spaces and publishers really need our help to survive right now. And as Kanga was just saying, we need their books. We need their wisdom. Um, and again, please don't forget to register for the events with Mark again and Charlene Carruthers on June 13th. And then the event with Ibram X. Kindi and Derricka Purnell, that's on June 19th. I think I misspoke and said the 18th, but the links to both of those events are in the YouTube chat. So thanks again to Kinga and Mark and to Haymarket Books for organizing this. Um, It was really a pleasure. And thank you all. Please uh, stay safe. Good night. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.